0: Coming, I'm Tony. Man, thank you all for coming. Tonight we have a very special guest, Dennis Dunaway from Alice Cooper, Blue Coop. Let's hear it! Come on, Dennis Dunaway, a rock and roll Hall of Famer. I'd like to thank everyone here at Niagara, Ronnie. Everyone, let me introduce you to author and filmmaker
1: Stephen Blush. Let's hear it from my man, your man, Tony Mann. What you're about to see is part of a series. Once a month, we sit down with some of the great minds of rock culture. I know the backstories and the questions to ask, which is why we call this the art of the interview. So thank you for coming. Tonight's guest needs relatively little introduction. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, the creative force behind Alice Cooper, and so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the ace of the base, Dennis Dunaway.
2: (laughs) Wow. Thank you. Wow, look at all these smiling faces. I must owe them money, and they think they're going to (laughs) collect.
1: So thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you so much. Great to have you here, Dennis. Um, We're just going to go talk a little history on you. Let's kind of start with your introduction to music and rock and roll. Like, uh, I guess we're leading into high school and the start of the band.
2: Uh, In high school in 1963, I went to see Dwayne Eddy and the Rebels. Who I didn't know were going to be there because it was actually a double feature the, uh, movie of Peter Pan, Walt Disney, and Hercules Unchained, Steve Reeves, <laughs> and I wanted to see the guy you know smash down the pillars and and everything. And so between movies, I didn't have money to go down and buy some more popcorn and. Uh, these guys come out and set up equipment, and they do three or four songs, and, you know, and I'm like, that's what I want to do. So that was, that was actually the moment when I decided that I was going to become a musician. I talked to my new friend at high school, Alice, who, uh, Vince Fernier at the time, uh, I was 16 and he was 15. I told him, we got to start a band. And we decided that we would start a band, but we would incorporate artistic ideas into it because we became friends in art class. So we liked Salvador Dali and uh, pop art from New York City and mm-hmm. all kinds of different things. And we thought, okay, we're gonna make a band that's artistic. So
1: yeah, talk about that. It's like the early days of the band. High school, I guess, it was a place called the VIP Club. Was that right? The place in Phoenix. Right. Yes. So kind of tough because. Because it is performance you you're, you're kind of doing a performance for every song and a lot of the early ideas like the spiders and all that, are kind of come to a fore there, right so so yes. talk, talk well, about that what's w- going on there that
2: was also you know incorporating artistic ideas, and some of them were very goofy but but it also had to do with this club uh had an owner that was kind of like Dick Clark, he wanted to know what keep keep up with the teens and know what this week's flavor is and so so a band would come in and be the big house band for a couple of weeks and then all of a sudden he'd get a new, new band. And so when he hired us, then we decided, you know what, we don't want to be replaced. We're going to keep changing so fast that two weeks from now, we are going to be the new band. And that's what we did. We started coming up with uh, some gimmick every weekend. We would play Friday and Saturday night, two or three sets. And then uh, that escalated. Do we had to have a new gimmick for each set, and uh, you know, so it was kind of like we didn't have any money to do this. Uh, so we'd go out in the alley and get the garbage cans and put them on stage. And we would uh, uh, probably the craziest one we did. Oh, we had toilet paper night. We raided we raided the bathroom and. <laughs> The bathroom was a big target for some reason. they were remodeling this bathroom and so we came out we wrapped Alice up so he looked like a mummy. We called him the viper <laughs> the wiper <laughs> and and then we had we had uh, you know toilet paper sticking out of our ears uh, and then we would throw toilet paper and it'd unravel over the crowd so so that led how do how are we going to top that okay well, they uh had taken, the the bathtub was going to be replaced and it was one of these big old iron bathtubs with the claw feet. We decided, okay Alice is going to get in the front of this and be pointing like George Washington crossing the Delaware and the rest of us are going to heave-ho this through the crowd out to the stage and then Alice was going to get out we'd do a show and then he'd get back in we'd heave-ho it back and of course we got back to the back room and collapsed you know mm-hmm. like whose idea was that <laughs> so one, th- uh, it just kept going you know it's a lot of fun and a lot of things that would fail but it didn't matter because if something failed we just didn't do it again or we would think of a way to make it work and then the things that worked we would just keep doing them for a while but the concept was that we wanted people to say Wow, you should see what this band did. And then when they bring their friend, we do something completely different. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, it's kind of a cool story with you guys, too, because you really are like high school friends, you know, and you kind of come of age together. Like there's a story of you guys in the Grand Canyon and like all this kind of stuff. But kind of talk about that, because that's a really cool part of the story to me, is that like here's a bunch of high school friends that really do make it to the top at one point, you know, so it's 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 you know it's kind of a cool story i think
2: well we had a great uh track coach who was also uh our english teacher and also uh ran the journalism class which uh which actually i signed up for journalism which for some reason was considered an all girl class like ho- home economics at the time so i signed up for this class and all of the you Guys on the cross country team, Alice and I, by then had, had gone out for cross country and track, and uh, they're all like, "Oh, Dunaway, what a sissy! You're in the journalism class." They're like, <laughs> and then it dawned on them, "Wait a minute, he's in the class with all the babes." You know? <laughs> 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 and anyway, so the uh, and and Alice and I had a real Ferris Bueller thing going, except we were a team. And this school, when I started, was the second year in its existence, so a lot of the rules weren't etched into stone yet. So Alice and I would be caught out of class, or we, we would be caught with our hair getting long, and uh, but our... Uh, but our English teacher would kind of help bail us out because he needed us for the next track meet.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so we,
2: we worked uh, a lot of things like that. So now he decides he's going to have the uh, cross-country and track team go down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And this isn't the main canyon. This is Supai Canyon, which is still Indian Reservation. So he would have to promise the uh, the Native Americans that we would leave it uh, you wouldn't know we were ever there and we wouldn't be all crazy and loud and everything. And But you had to hike all the way down the side of the Grand Canyon, zigzag down to the bottom and then hike about six miles to get to this paradise where there's waterfalls and the water is uh, extremely turquoise because of the high line content. You reach your arm and you can't see your hand anymore. So we all went down there. By then, uh-huh. Alice and I were pretty inseparable buddies. Uh, now at night, <clears throat> there were tarantulas spotted crawling on oh. the. So Alice and I were on this cement picnic table. And we locked our arms so we wouldn't fall off if we were asleep, uh-huh. and, and we didn't sleep much. Tarantulas, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, a lot of things like that. I mean this uh, third guy who was on the track team who became our drummer, uh, he. Uh, we decided that, okay, we're going to have this thing that uh, Coach Smith had uh, set up where we were going to have a bonfire, and then he would tell scary tales, and he was really good at it. So we thought, okay, we plan this whole thing out where John brought this rubber mask of the uh, creature from the, the lagoon or whatever it is and uh, creep from the deep or whatever (laughs) and so we were going to uh, we were going to have John sneak off during the the scary stories and go over to the river and then we would time it so that we would call hey we saw something down at the river come on everybody and then John would come up out of the water with his mask on (laughs) right okay so best laid plans uh There were only uh, two other people in the canyon. They had a tent that was a little bit, I don't know, a couple hundred yards from where we were. And uh, what, what we didn't realize, and we didn't want to use our flashlights because we didn't want the other guys to see us sneaking down there with our plant. So anyway, what we didn't realize is that when you're down in the Grand Canyon, when it gets dark the canyon's so deep that it gets pitch black down there and so Alice and I are walking around in the woods trying to make our way down to the to the river and we're like oh my god i don't know we're lost you know and all of a sudden this light goes on and we're right next to the the tent where these other campers are and they're drunk and the guy comes stumbling out so we go and try to hide behind a tree and this guy comes stumbling out with his lantern and stumbles over to, the, to this tree and starts taking a leak on the tree. And then he looks over and he sees us and we're standing there. Like, <laughs> and it's like he's so drunk he didn't want to deal with it. He went into denial. So he just... Anyway, so uh, that never happened. Uh, John, we left John stranded down in the stream and we went back to the... <laughs> So just stories like that, you know, just teenagers, you know, goofy stuff. It was
1: more than, it was almost more than a band. It was like you guys were really brothers at a certain point. Oh yeah, the the band was uh, just part of of what we were up to. Mm -hmm. So talk about, uh, go to Los Angeles, talk about like the, paint us a picture of like late 60s. Los Angeles and you guys kinda of connecting yourselves within the scene that you're seeing?
2: Well, as as the Spiders, which is what we became uh, for the VIP club, uh, we actually got a, a hit single that went to number 11 on, in Tucson, Arizona, called Don't Blow Your Mind. And we were pretty big, a garage band. When we played all around the Southwest, uh, when we played our song, people would jump up and down. So. So we were pretty big, and we and you know, and we were still all still living at home. So and we were getting paid pretty good at the VIP. So we had cash in our pockets, and and now uh, a friend of ours uh, kept saying, you know, well you guys are big fish in a little pond. You've got to come to LA and see what's really happening. We're like eh, I don't know, why go to LA. You know, we got chicks galore here and everything, and anyway talked us into going for a weekend now this is this is youth talking but uh you know we didn't even check to see how much money we had we all piled in a van and we drove to la and then when we got there we couldn't afford a hotel room we slept in griffith park on the park benches and then in the morning uh, we're like, oh, we're hungry. We still don't have any money, so we started just wandering around the park together. And then we see this guy. It's early in the morning now, like break of dawn. This guy's got this uh, uh, sandwich truck, fresh daily sandwiches, but he's tossing all of the previous day's food into the garbage bin and we show up, and we push skinny little Alice up front, you know, because he looks the most pathetic, and we go, and we, <laughs> we're looking at the guy, you know, with big eyes, and and the guy keeps tossing stuff, and then he goes, ah, take it, and like a bunch of locusts, we moved in on the truck, so, you know, uh, but Saturday night, we are, we're all dressed crazy and everything, and we're walking down Sunset Boulevard, and everything's happening. I mean, the birds are over here, the doors are over there, and Buffalo Springfield and everything. And, you know, and uh, the the gals weren't too bad either because, you know, we had never even heard the word silicone, but, yeah. <laughs> but, this, but this was like, oh man, we got to move here. The, the same thing that thousands of bands had said, because the you, it was very hard to get a gig in L.A. because there were so many bands trying to get gigs. And, and if there was a club, uh, it, it was common for Jimi Hendrix to just walk in with his guitar and plug in and jam for the rest of the night. So, uh, And also the way we looked. We, by then we had decided that we were going to start writing our own music. We didn't want to be a garage band anymore because that had been done. We wanted to do something that had never been done before, and apply these artistic ideas. So our music got very avant-garde. The way we dressed got very avant-garde, and uh, a lot of people made fun of us because we dressed crazy on the street in broad daylight, too. But
1: uh, yeah, talk about that a little bit. I mean, you're into Dada. Mm -hmm. You're you're, uh, a friendship with Salvador Dali. Um, What you're doing is very radical. It's a little transvestitism there's like you have a singer named Alice which is at that time was you know was it a boy or a girl kind of, you know people were worried about those kind of things so it's really like it's art applied to rock and roll and you're one of the first bands kind of doing that in retrospect
2: right well I mean it sounds like we had a lot of integrity that we were just gonna do artistic things but we also would do anything to get attention you right. know so <laughs> naming the singer Alice and yeah. and dressing crazy uh that had something to do with it too and you know the androgynous thing it was very difficult to talk our guitar player Michael into doing that but then when he saw that the girls liked it <laughs> then all of a sudden you know he we won him over pretty fast uh so you know, things were kind of heading that way anyway. We thought, you know, our influences were the British invasion, but, but we were also watching all these other things, you know, Liberace and Little Richard and all that kind of stuff. So the, uh, uh, the inspiration to uh, become more flamboyant in our, uh, the way we dressed uh, you know, even the Beatles wearing those sou- satin outfits on the back of Sgt. Pepper. You know, that was something very different for the time. So all of those things kind of, whatever we liked though, we wanted to outdo it. You know, right. we wanted, we saw somebody with long hair. Ours is going to be longer. You know, so right. that had a lot to do with it and uh uh you know, even though a lot of the bands made fun of us, we were kind of like the joke of of LA because of our crazy music, but we worked more than most bands. We were the house band at the Cheetah Club out on the pier next to Pacific Ocean Park where the Aragon Ballroom is uh, where uh, Lawrence Welk made the ballroom famous by his radio broadcast and that made him famous. So now they gave it a makeover. it the grand old ballroom was looked old and we wanted something for the kids you know so they put these gigantic sheets of uh, st- uh, aluminum shiny alum- stainless steel maybe and and these curtains would be this giant oval and then they had this outrageous light show that looked like a gigantic arms of an octopus reaching out with all of these different colored lights and everything strobe lights and everything very psychedelic but that's where we became the house band so we opened for the doors uh, we opened for almost every band that came through town
1: Mm -hmm. so um talk about like uh Los Angeles kind of takes a turn like very fast while you 're there by sixty nine seventy you 've got Manson and all this kind of bad st- it 's no longer like the peace and love of of uh, the summer of love in los angeles so uh, and I felt like Alice Cooper kind of like represented that in many ways too.
2: It changed everything yeah. overnight uh, Charles Manson all of a sudden it went from you know blowing bubbles and and in a love-in where everything's groovy to you know all of a sudden now you've got The Doors singing this is the end and you've got uh, this darkness fell over the whole scene Uh, and uh, The Doors were the perfect soundtrack for that in LA because uh, uh, you heard The Doors all the time there uh, and and their music broke away from what everybody else was doing at the time Mm -hmm. and it really reflected the darkness of that whole change of attitude you know as far as we were concerned you know uh, uh, there were there were two different types of people when we first landed in la there were the the hippies who wore you know fringe leather jackets and patchouli oil and headbands and everything then you had the freaks who were more colorful and more uh, uh, more avant-garde in their music. And, of course, Frank Zappa was kind of the, the leader of the freaks, but mm-hmm. there was also Vito's dancers. This guy Vito had a class, uh, an art class, where all these uh, people that would migrate to L.A., runaways, a lot of them, uh, he would give these big classes, and then he would he would have them be a dance troupe. So what would happen is, if you were playing at a club, and all of a sudden Vito's dancers showed up, they would take over the whole room. All these girls would be dancing and spinning and everybody doing all this stuff. Uh, and uh, And all of a sudden, it would turn into this great party, you know, where you, you people would almost pay Vito to show up. We didn't have any money to pay him, but he'd show up once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so LA had the freaks, which we related to more, even though we made fun of everybody, including ourselves. Mm-hmm. But uh, our music was definitely freaks. The the hippies didn't like us, and also the, uh, uh, you know, Buffalo, Springfield, and. Uh, uh, all of these bands that lived in Topanga Canyon. It was more like down with the dirt and stuff and and more organic more acoustic guitars and things. Mm-hmm. Well they didn't like us either. <laughs>
1: you know you br- bring up Frank Zappan, that's kind of like a it was really good for you guys, like in other words like you, it got you known, this association with him, but I guess business wise it wasn't so great And um, but kind of uh it seemed to me like you were like almost like I've met him once and it almost seemed like he, people were for his entertainment like so like you were, he you had know, like a menagerie of weirdos that he was kind of surrounded himself with so it would be like, you were almost like a male version of the GTOs maybe or something like that, did you ever kind of feel like, did you, you get what oh, I'm saying? Oh
2: definitely, the whole uh, uh, the whole Mothers of Invention uh, following was as colorful as we were Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, we really barged our way into his record deal. He didn't have enough money to hire to to sign us. His manager was throwing his hat down. You know, <laughs> you can't afford the bands you're already <laughs> paying yeah. to record. You can't afford these guys. You know, <laughs> so. But we heard that he had a, a new record label, and we were determined that we were going to get on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we did know the GTOs. Uh, Alice was going out with Miss Christine, which was uh, kind of a uh, kind of a hand holding sort of relationship for the most part. Uh, but we would go, we would walk all the way from Topanga Canyon to Laurel Canyon and up to the log cabin that Frank Zappa owned. GTOs lived down in the basement. And we would go over and beg Miss Christine to get Frank to come and hear us because we knew he would love us and sign us to his label. She, he, she talked him into it three times, and then he couldn't show up, and then he couldn't show up, and the third time he even showed up, but he had to leave before we played. So now she made the mistake of telling Alice that uh, Frank's going to be home tomorrow. We're like, we're coming over. She, no, no, no. Frank doesn't like people to come over. We're like. Tell, uh, we, we're coming over, just tell us what time. She's, she's <laughs> like, okay, let's just say seven o'clock and I'll call you if it's not okay. And by the time we walked back to, to the Topanga Canyon, Alice had already turned it into 7 a.m. And we stayed up all night boiling our strings because we couldn't afford to buy new ones. You know, boiling them kind of helps and then planning our set list, and then planning what we were gonna say to Frank and everything. And we showed up bright and early in the morning (laughs) and banging on Zappa's cabin door. And Finally, uh, Miss Christine comes to the door and she opens the door and she goes into shock. Mm Because we're already hauling equipment into the, <laughs> the driveway, and we barred and she ran down the hallway to block a certain door, so that's where we went, and we set up our yeah, we set up our equipment amps, drums, full drum kit out right outside the door where Frank and Gail were asleep. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and I remember we were playing so loud that the picture on the wall was going crooked. <laughs> so finally the door opens, Frank's hand, all we see is Frank's hand come out, motioning for us to stop. <laughs> you know, And we so we stop, it dwindles to a stop, and then he sticks his head out and says, let me have some coffee, and then I'll listen. <laughs> and so, uh, Miss Christine scrambling to the, the the kitchen, and she points, you know, set up the card table there, get the chair, get it. So Frank sat down with a big mug of black coffee, and we played, I think we played three songs, but he may have cut us off sooner than that, but he stopped us and he said, you know, you guys do stuff that, that I can't get the mothers of invention to do, and I'm thinking, really? I don't know if I believe that, but I'm glad he likes us. And he said, uh, "I, you know, I'm I'm only going to be in town for three days, and uh, if you guys want a record deal, uh, d- uh, I need to talk to your manager." You know, and we're like, "Manager, what's that?" <laughs> you know, we're like, "Oh my God, we have we have three days to get a manager." He said, "If you can't," and I'm the only one in the band that remembers it this way because the others remember that he was practically begging us to to sign with his manager, but yeah. no, he said, if you can't find a manager, I guess Herbie Cohen can do it, but I'd rather have him, you know, focus on my career, not yours. So, and anyway, so my wife is here, Cindy, who uh, she, she had come to LA because uh, her brother, Neil Smith, the drummer of the band, had given her a call when she was in Dallas, and Neil had just quit his really cool band that had moved to San Francisco. And he's telling her, well, you're doing it, following all your dreams, and here I am just a loser, you know, where you got nothing going. And Sid, "He said, I'm not gonna hear you talk like that. I'm coming to LA. She came to LA and she got a job at this place, Inside Outside Boutique, which was, uh, I think Santa Monica, wasn't it? Santa Monica, and she worked there with her girlfriend Linda, who they're still best friends after all these years, but they would make groovy clothes, you know, and it was a clothing shop, and these two New York guys would come in there, frequent it once in a while, and uh, it was Joe Greenberg and Shep Gordon, we called him Joey at the time, but but he came in, I mean, they came in, and Cindy said, you guys look like managers, uh, do you, are you managers?" And they're, they're like, yeah, we're managers. <laughs> More recent years, uh, Joe Greenberg said, if they would have said, are you guys roofers, we would have said, yeah. <laughs> two, two blonde babes. Yeah. And so, uh, so anyway, uh, city's like, oh, who do you manage? And, and Joe said, uh, the Left Bank and Cindy's like oh okay so anyway the next day they showed up in their old Cadillac and and Cindy brought them up to Topanga Canyon and we met we played some of the music for them and I don't think we won them over with our music at all <laughs> and they, they were like oh what's this you know we're playing BB on Mars and stuff like that and uh, anyway but when we told them that Frank Zappa was Ready to sign us All we needed Is some managers Then Then they were in So they They agreed At least To come and hear us Play at this uh, Show That was a Lenny Bruce Christmas show It was a benefit Yeah Really And this was At the Cheetah Ballroom But it was during the day So out on the beach They had another stage And bands like Iron Butterfly Were playing out there And And we were going to play In the In the uh, Ballroom and uh, and so Frank Zappa was there in the back of the room, and these two new potential managers were back there. And uh, this was not unusual for us. But what happened is, we when we started playing, when people saw how we looked and heard our name, Alice Cooper, and saw that there were all were all guys, and we started playing. Basically, people would only stay long enough to, to spit out some insults, and then they'd line up for the exits. And we, and the GTOs were in front of the stage screaming because they always supported us, but pretty much we emptied this room, that <laughs> big room that was full of people Fast, and we thought, you know, it emptied so fast. I, at one point, I looked behind me, thinking, "Is there a fire or something?" <laughs> and uh, anyway, so uh, we thought, "Oh my God, we blew it." Okay, there goes everything, you know. And and Zappa left, but I did see that he was laugh, he was smiling and laughing when he walked out. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well, that's kind of good, I guess. Uh, but the managers were thinking, "Oh, well, this is this is going to be over." But uh, Shep Gordon was saying, the power, the power to be able to empty a room that fast. We just have to harness that power. You know, we're like,
1: oh, okay, we're
2: we're game for that,
1: you know. Um, You mentioned before uh, the doors, obviously, the connection with you guys. Kind of talk a little bit more about that. And also, I guess, Desperado, is that about him? Is that song Desperado? Well, okay. And uh, I was just going to say, because it's also like he had the leather pants, and then Alice started have kind of a, almost had that had that same look. And, and it just uh, seemed like it was a, a very close association. We had a
2: lot of influences. I mean, the Yardbirds were influenced. The Beatles always were. The Stones, the Who. Uh, but when we would get to know people, then all of a sudden there would be an obvious influence. You can hear Robbie Krieger in Glenn Buxton's guitar playing a lot and uh, that's we were friends we liked what they were doing and and you know uh, but so we got to know the Doors because we the first time we played with them was that it might have even been the Lenny Bruce thing but it was a similar kind of event I think it was a different one and uh, we played three shows with the Doors in one day so we did a like a, a noon day, and the evening show and then the, that night and, uh, uh, and I wasn't even going to go stick around for him because that day the girl who would book us for the Cheetah Club had gotten us the Doors album and I remember putting it on this little tiny cheap turntable we had and playing it and I'm thinking the Doors sounds more like the Boars to me <laughs> and I, I didn't get it, you know, not at all and so, uh, I remember I was walking out of the club when the doors were getting ready to play, and then she said, oh, you criticize people for walking out on you, and you're not going to give them a chance? And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll listen, <laughs> you know. And of course, they it was amazing. And the show after that was even more amazing, and that night was just to the moon. But uh, between those shows, we hung out with them backstage and became friends. So. Uh, you know we would see them around Hollywood and, and they came over to our house for a, uh, a Halloween party.
1: You <laughs> can imagine um, talk about we, we hear now about the Hollywood vampires a lot what was What was that about? What was that really about or what what was that about?
2: You mean the original Hollywood vampire yeah, I mean, we, yeah well, that was post original Alice Cooper group. That okay. was Alice, uh, uh, who at that point had gotten very deep into the bottle, not just sipping beer all day like he spent years doing, but now he's drinking uh, hard liquor as well. And that was at the uh, Roxy or the Rainbow, I can't remember. I think it was at the uh, Rainbow. Rainbow. Yeah, it was rainbow. The thank the rainbow, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Everybody knows but me. <laughs> uh And, you know, uh, uh, John Lennon was going through his last weekend and Harry Nielsen, you know, and so Alice would, uh, if you've ever been there, there's like a few steps up to this little, almost like a tree house, but it's in the club. And it's got a a table, like a picnic table kind of a thing, and Alice and John Lennon and uh, Harry Nielsen, Mickey Dolenz, uh, uh, Mackenzie Phillips, you know she was just a kid then but she was there and they would just you know drink until they were oblivious to everything you know and and uh, and then they called it the Hollywood vampires and later on Alice's formed the band and right. kind of to as a tribute to all of, not only them but other musicians who were great and kind of uh, you know had more to do had
1: they lived on. Sure, sure. Um, there's also a connection with you guys in early Pink Floyd too, right? Were you guys friends with them? Yeah, uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, we're talking about Sid, is this Sid Barrett era? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, Sid yeah. Barrett. Yeah. Uh, we
2: first heard about Sid Barrett when we lived in Topanga Canyon because Alice and I read this Paul McCartney interview and the guy was saying, uh, hey, what other bands are happening in England right now? And he said, Pink Floyd. So we sent away to England and got their album, the British version, before uh, it was released in America. So that was an influence. Uh, We played that record until it was hardly playable anymore. Uh, But then when they first came to America, uh, Joe and Shep were helping them with their tour and they came and stayed at our house when we lived in Santa Monica and uh, you know, we were the house band at the Cheetah Club but but we didn't have any money. I mean, remember we were all congregated in the kitchen and Sid Barrett was sitting at the table and uh Roger Waters went over to the refrigerator to see if what food was in there and when he opened, and we said no there's don't don't bother opening it all that's in there are carrots. And they laughed, but when he opened it then he saw there was nothing but a gigantic bag of carrots because our light show guy Charlie Carnell had gotten a job at the uh, the local carrot juicing place, and he got three carrots, and that's all we had. Uh, yeah. We had, in fact, we had eaten so many carrots that our skin was turning orange on the <laughs> palms of our, and not from stains, from in inward uh, yeah. out. <laughs> and so, uh, so I sat down at the table with as far away from you as Sid Barrett and and you know he's a hero and everything and I'm talking to him and I'm talking about music and I'm talking about creativity and all this stuff and I think he's he's really getting it you know this is this is me talking to my hero and we're really you know locking in and then I realize that it's one of these <laughs> he's not there he's sitting there looking like he's paying attention and then i look over at his guitar is leaning against it's not even in a case and the strings were high which didn't uh uh wasn't a surprise because he plays a lot of slide but the strings were completely rusty that surprised me and then the roadie came over and said sad isn't it i'm like what's going on here and he said uh the reason I'm here is because Sid can walk out the door and nobody will know where he went. And it takes us a long time to find him. I'm in charge of keeping track of him and his guitar. He said, the reason it's rusty, I found it out in the street one night and it, in England and it was raining on it and everything. So I went into shock. I had never seen anything like this. and. It, uh, so he's just sitting there, so everything's going on, talking to the other guys in the band, and basically it's both bands, you know, and we're just, uh, you know, sent out for some food and, and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden Sid stands up and he walks into the living room and nobody was in the living room. In fact, there it was dimly lit. And Neil and I went over, uh, to see where he was going and Les Braden, the, the guy that was hired to watch him came with us. And we just watched him and he walked into the living room and kept walking all the way to the far corner until he came to the corner and then he stopped and he stayed there with his face in the corner. Yeah, so uh, we we invite, we had a, an audition at Ghazari's on the Sunset Strip, which was the big competition for Uh, the Whiskey-a-Go-Go and it was in the afternoon so the Ellis Cooper group were going to perform for the the guy that hires people there Mm -hmm. so it was uh, the the guy who hires people and uh, our managers Joe and Shep and Pink Floyd sitting at a table it wasn't (laughs) Sid it was it was uh, David Gilmore was with them and they were sitting at a table and we did this performance and I thought this is awkward you know we're doing this whole show and and I can see the expression on everybody's face it's not like a crowd you know uh, but it didn't do any good to turn around because there was a mirror behind us and I could still see them <laughs> but we did our show and then we went and said so what did you think and they said wow that that looks like a lot of fun you know and uh, but they were more concerned with what to do with Sid they had to. They had to uh, bail on the tour because they did one performance at this place called The Bank. And uh, it was an amazing show. Uh, but Sid was hardly playing. He walked up to the microphone and he got shot. You could tell he got shocked on the microphone. And then he just stood there staring while the rest of the guys did the did the show. And... Uh, So, so that was the Pink Floyd story. We we were just shattered, you know, and very disappointed. Uh, It took us a while to accept David Gilmour because, because it didn't have that erratic uh, psychedelic uh, urgency. Sure, sure. You know, uh, we of course, like everybody else in the world, became big Pink Floyd fans with David Gilmour's playing and everything.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So, talk about you know uh the rise of the band i guess warner brothers right is that where you were you with yeah um so just you know all the tell us that story kind of like leading up to schools out which is kind of like a, i guess the pinnacle
2: you mean from the time we got signed yeah
1: correct like you know talking yeah. about the records and the tours okay and, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah well the the we had we had done uh pretties for you an easy action which mm. barely made it on the charts otherwise we would have been goners <laughs> Just the fact one hundred and ten on the charts. Now, okay, we'll let you record another album. Mm-hmm. You know, and that one barely made it. But we also had these other things going. We had toured with the mothers and we threw a chicken at the audience up in Toronto. So we had a reputation. But the one thing we didn't have is a, a hit single. So uh driving around in the station wagon with our electric chair strapped to the top and all that, you know. <laughs> Uh, it was great back then in the Midwest where we got most of our gigs at the time. Uh, you know, if you were, as soon as you started getting anywhere near Ohio and that part of the country, you'd find yourself, every song that came on the radio, you'd turn it up a little bit until pretty soon you go, we better turn this down or we're going to blow the speaker, you know. But the songs, the the singles that jumped out of the dashboard, we were listening for who who can we get to produce us so we can get a, a hit single? And it was the Guess Who. Those Guess Who, These Eyes, uh, American Woman, those songs just would really uh, hit you in the face. So we said, okay, we need to get that guy, Jack Richardson, to be to produce us. So, uh, Jack Richardson overnight became harassed by, <laughs> by our management because he couldn't go anywhere. If he went to Chicago to record, there would be messages at the hotel, messages at the recording studio, and we were driving him nuts, really. And finally, he's, he had this kid that, that hung around the studio who had never produced anything, Bob Ezrin, he said, do me a favor, go listen to these guys And then we can tell them we listened and we pass and maybe end this nightmare, you know? (laughs) So uh, Bob Ezrin came to New York City and we hadn't, New York City was the last town to kind of accept us for what we were doing. You know, we would have a hit number one across the country and then they might play it and they Mm -hmm. might not. So it was like that, but we played at Max's Kansas City and there was hardly anybody there. Andy Warhol had taken his paintings home. You could still see the shadows <laughs> of where the paints, you know, and there was no dressing room. The dressing room was full of case, cases of empty bottles of beer. And uh, so we're, we're on the staircase and it's the only time the Alice Cooper group ever talked about let's not play. This there's been no advertising. We're tuning up on the stairwell. There's nobody here, and me being Mr. Newt Rockney of the group, you know, I used to always say, "Hey, the smaller the crowd, the the bigger the rumors. Let's go, you know, like like uh, Mickey Rooney, you know, Miss O'Leary needs an operation. Let's put on a show." <laughs> and uh, I remember Glenn Bucks saying how about if we don't play and we start a rumor that we did? (laughs) But but anyway, we did this show, and by then, people were there. You know, it wasn't packed like Bob Essin remembers, and people weren't wearing Alice makeup like he remembers. But, uh, But we did play, but we put so much anger into this show. It was like just, it was, uh, we probably were, were the uh, doing punk more than what we, knew. we were playing yeah. our songs, but we were delivering it like punk rock, and uh, Bob Essendon was there, you know, and so as far as we knew, you know, after the set, this kid comes up and says, you know, hey, this is great, you know, I work with Jack Richardson, you know, uh, I'm going to get you guys a deal with Warner Brothers, which... We already knew that back in Hollywood, Warner Brothers had passed on us, because uh, Mo Austin and Joe Smith were heard, overheard walking out of the Whiskey-A-Go-Go saying, how are we going to go back to the board of directors and tell them we want to hire a bunch of transvestites? <laughs> you know? So they already passed on us. So we're like kid, you know, I'd buy you a drink, but it's illegal, even yeah. though Glenn would do anything that was illegal. <laughs> but, but so... Yeah, so that put things into motion. Now, Warner Brothers said, okay, well, oh, Bob Essend goes back to Toronto. Jack Richardson, as he describes it, Jack Richardson's desk, and Jack is there, and he's like, guess what? I like him. <laughs> 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 and and, and uh, Jack Richardson said, well, if you like him, you produce him, you know? And so uh, Warner Brothers said, okay, you know, all right, well, this sounds good, you know, maybe we'll uh, hire you guys after all. We built the reputation with the chicken and everything by then, so Warner Brothers knew that we had, you know, uh, turned some heads. So, uh, But they said, we can't sign you to a guy that's never produced anything. We need this guy with all the hits under his belt. And so they uh, love it to death and killer were signed with the agreement that Jack Richardson had to be there to oversee the production of those albums to make sure that we got a hit and got albums under budget, which that's what he did. So, that's
1: that's how that went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So talk about, you know, the standard of, of success in the music business is a number one record. And School's Out, I guess, was number two. But still, I mean, it's right there. So kind of talk about like, you achieve this so how, people probably treat you different you or you maybe you're thinking different but that's the that's kind of the bar that we set for success oh they had a number one record or they had a top 10 record oh
2: absolutely
1: yeah. oh overnight
2: all yeah. of a sudden uh we got better gigs we got more gigs you know and even though with our uh image no matter where we went, we had, for every person like us, there were 10 that wanted to kill us in the parking lot, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was hard to actually think, oh, now we've made it, you know, because we still had this. But, you know, things got a lot easier for us. And uh, and the the sound of Love It to Death, of course, was a whole different ballgame from what we had done before that. So now, uh, even though when we walked into the studio for Love It to Death, You know, we had had two strikes on us and we thought Pretty's For You was going to set the world on fire. Zappa told us he played it for the Beatles and they liked it. We thought, we're on fire, (laughs) you know. And and then the second album we thought came out good too. But uh, So we weren't popping any champagne walking in the studio and Love It to Death, but the results got us a hit. I'm 18. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, overnight because... I'm 18. Actually, broke out of Canada from CKLW, which was uh, had this powerful transmitter that covered the whole Midwest and Canada. And uh, it was uh, the DJ that played it was uh, Rosalie Trombley. They called her the Girl with the Golden Ear because she could find hits. And back then, a hit could break regionally and then expand from there and become a national hit. Well, that's what I'm 18 did. Uh, She started playing it like crazy, and on the third day, she told me this personally, years later, we were having giant martinis in Phoenix, (laughs) and she told me, and I asked her, I had never met her before, I said, wow, what made you think 18 was a hit? She said, the lyrics. She said, as soon as I heard the the opening verse, I knew that was a hit that was going to connect with that age group who were the record buying age group. Mm-hmm. But so she started playing it and on the third day, she said, all the other DJs came in to her and said, you can't play this band. They they kill chickens, you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. And she said the timing was perfect because every phone was ringing with requests for I'm 18. And I said, Rosalie, that was us. <laughs> she, she said, no, no, you guys could not. She she said it was the most requested song in the history of CKLW. And they moved it into a heavy rotation. It was every fifth song at one point. So it would be us, the Stones, Hendrix, Beatles, or whatever, us again. Wow. And, and it would be like that. And it became a, a, you know, of course, I wasn't one to... Bathe and you know success i was I was uh, hard to believe now, but I was a very quiet introverted artist that was an uh, observer, and all I did is think about what are we going to do next what 's the next song what 's the next stage thing you know so it was uh, I was probably the last to actually realize that we had finally made it.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, talk about being kind of like a creative driving force but not being the front man
2: Yeah, well that was fine with me. I was the wizard of Oz the man behind the curtain, you know, yeah Yeah, <laughs> uh, Yeah, that was fine with me. Uh, uh, I Couldn't remember lyrics I couldn't be the front man. <laughs> I, I still can't even remember lyrics to my own songs mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, that was all perfectly fine with me Uh The whole band was like that, though. By then, I mean, you're thinking about, it's hard to put it in perspective with all the things that have happened since then. You know, it actually was pretty shocking back then, what we did, but we had to do it uh, with the sensors breathing down our necks, otherwise nobody would hear it. So we had to keep going up to the line and then sticking our toe across and then pushing the limit farther and then sticking our toe across and trying to make things so, okay, we're gonna do a song called Dead Babies. <laughs> but it's gonna be about parental neglect, you see? <laughs> so we could outrage, but then, oh, no, it's it's actually a socially, social comment and it's uh, You guys
1: seemed also to be able to uh, get publicity, not like mainstream publicity, like newspapers as opposed to like- That
2: goes back to the Ferris Bueller days, Alice and I on the journalism so when we started our band, the Earwigs, the from Cesspool, England, by the way, we uh, we <laughs> and we wore the wigs, get it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, and it's a bug. It's not a beetle. It's an earwig. Uh, so uh, and our and our drummer was named Kinko instead of Ringo. So uh, so because we worked on the school newspaper we would figure out all these ways to get our track team in a story about us and stories about us, and and Alice was the master exaggerator, and we didn't have any scruples that way, even though we were supposed to be writing the truth and learning to be true journalists, you know. Eh, mm-hmm. the Earwigs did this, the Earwigs did that, and next thing you know, uh, uh, we're showing up everywhere. So that started early on because we saw the Stones okay you could be uh, any band could be in a a music paper in any town you know Village Voice or the whatever you know each town had their own Uh, but if you wanted to get into the main newspapers you had to do something like the Stones they the Stones got headlines across the country. Well, maybe not headlines, but they got publicity in regular newspapers across the country because they they took a leak on a building. You know, and we're thinking, oh, that's like jump the shark. You know, we got to do stuff that is going to be new, newsworthy outside of the, right. the oh, music. music. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, early on, and of course, uh, uh, Joe Greenberg and Shep Gordon jumped right on board with that because uh, Shep Gordon's hero was the Colonel Tom Parker, you know, who made chickens dance yeah. because he had them on a hot plate, you know. <laughs> and so, so yeah, so this was all there. And, and, you know, our management was just as uh, uh, creative as we were. None of us knew what we were doing when we met you know Mm -hmm. we knew what we wanted to do we had no idea how to do it and we didn't really want to listen to anybody's advice because if we follow rules we're going to be like somebody else so so if somebody told us we couldn't do do something it was almost like okay they've tossed down the gauntlet let's do it you know Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of that involved you know And, and also you know my wife Cindy was was a part of this whole thing too because uh, her making these, finding these new fabrics that were chrome and, uh, you know, and I, I mean, it was blinding chrome. We would play outdoor festival and, and people would have to put on their sunglasses, not for the sun, but to be able to look at us on stage in chrome outfits and all that. Uh, so, you know, all of these things kind of helped with us getting publicity. She made clear plastic pants for us. We played in LA and we had clear plastic pants and uh, our managers were thinking we're going to call up the, the cops LAPD and get them down here because there's a band down here wearing clear plastic pants man and you know, it didn't work because we were right down a few blocks up the street was the classic cat and all of the, the strip clubs. <laughs> Who cared if we had Claire? You know, it didn't work. But, but still, Cindy did a lot of things like that that would, you know, it was actually, that had a lot to do with our stage shows, our ideas, dead babies or whatever, you know, the chicken or whatever, had to, had to do with getting attention really, when it comes down to it. But we were having so much fun
1: doing it. <laughs> you, you bring up the shows and that's a really important part too. It's, You know you could say it's the start of Shock Rock but it was really you know you watch it was almost like it ended like a morality play you know with the with the electrocution or something like that. It was, well you know. again
2: that's the the sensors breathing down our neck. Okay well we're gonna we're gonna electrocute our singer you know but uh, Oh, that's because he has to do something bad to deserve to be electrocuted. And then, you know what? He's okay in the end. He's resurrected. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. is saying the best stories, you know, start way down here, and then something gets better, they get better, they get, everything gets better. And then all of a sudden they're on top, and then everything starts going wrong, and, and then in the end everything's okay. You know, he says yeah. the Bible's like that. Yeah.
3: You know, mm-hmm. like, right.
2: So uh we had that, yes. It was definitely a morality play and we had thought of that idea way before we started being able to afford to do it. You know, I was getting frustrated with it when we lived in uh Detroit because I wanted I said, Let's let's build an electric chair or no, let's get an electric chair. And they're like what? Turn your pockets inside out, you know. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you mean, get an electric chair? I said, okay, I'll build an electric chair. And so I went out to the garage and our roadie helped me. We had some two by fours, you know, and we built this thing. And we had the lights blinking and oh, we need something to go over his head. Oh, what about the what about that 10 thing on the ceiling light of the garage? Get the get the uh, ladder, that kind of a thing. And I don't even think the paint was completely dry yet. It's still a little t- tacky. But we went in, got Alice to come out to the garage. We turned off all the lights, so we had to kind of guide him over and get him to sit down. And then we turned on these flashing lights on the on the electric chair and told him, Alice, pretend that you're getting electrocuted. And that was the best performance he ever did when we got on stage he never equaled that great you know he really <laughs> so so you know it was a matter of being able to afford these ideas that we
1: had had for for years mm-hmm. um there's also a point where you guys are uh, living in um uh, a, a mansion in connecticut or something and that's kind of like the breakup of the band Do you, mm-hmm. can you kind of take us through that
2: yeah, well, um we lived in Detroit and and our management office was in New York City. And uh, you know, everything the band did we all voted on and the majority won and then we'd all, you know, do that wholeheartedly. Uh well I was the only one that thought it was a dumb idea to move to New York so that our phone bill would be better because we're never home anyway. <laughs> you
3: know?
2: What are you talking about? We're never home. If we move there, we won't be there either. So, but, but that was the, the reasoning. We moved to, uh, closer to New York City because we wanted to be closer to our management office. And uh, so, you know, we piled everything in trucks, including our St. Bernard Gretchen, and, and uh, we drove to uh, Connecticut which, uh, at that time, there was a tax break, so we didn't live across the border in New York, and that's what made Greenwich, Connecticut in the first place, but. So, uh, yeah, so we get there, and it, it's a mansion that was, uh, had something to do with uh, Warner Baxter, the, the, the star of 42nd Street, Busby Be Berkeley movie, and uh, I think it was his ex-wife or something lived there, or whatever. Uh, But this thing was Mediterranean. It was all way beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Uh, But uh, Well, okay, so you walk in and you're looking around and you think, wow, what a high ceiling. You walk in the next room and you go, whoa, what a high ceiling. (laughs) You know, and there's paintings way up there on the ceiling there's a, a fireplace that's big enough to park literally you could park a volkswagen in it and then at one end of this ballroom is this giant wall of window panes but there's no glass in it and there's a wall about this tall and a little door and we're looking in there and there's a bunch of folding chairs and we're and we're like what what is this i don't get it and then this guy just uh i'm not uh, Frederico Galesi, the owner, the owner of the place, comes bopping in with his all dressed really nice and very, you know, uh, bachelor, you know, uh, likable, I guess. And he's got his Chinese cook with him because he said he his Chinese cook is always with him because Chinese food is not good after it gets cold. So do you guys want Chinese? Mm-hmm. We're like, I don't know, we're wondering about, said, oh, the room, the room, the reason it doesn't have any glass is because the orchestra goes in there and they all sit down so they can't see the guest, you know, like mafia stuff, and the music comes up through the windows and so the people can hear the orchestra without Without worrying about somebody seeing things (laughs) going on that they don't want. So, okay, anyway, we're, we all live there, I mean, it's a mansion until you get 50 people in there living there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's, uh, it becomes tough. Cindy uh, would do the dishes, and then you know, five seconds later, every dish in the house would be dirty again. And it'd be because there'd be a bunch of people in our house that nobody knew, but you couldn't establish that until you waited until Glenn woke up at 3 in the afternoon or ask everybody, did you invite? No, we don't know. We don't know them. Okay, well, all the food's gone again, you know, kind of a thing. So, yeah, it's a mansion. Yeah. But it was uh, full of people. But we had our uh, rehearsal room in this beautiful room and all these amplifiers we would bring in. And, you know, and we had some powerful lamps then. Uh, more than this old mansion was wired to handle because uh, Cindy woke up one night and the fuse box was red hot. Things were melting in there. Uh, but we we wrote uh, the Billion Dollar Babies album there. Uh, we wrote most of School's Out there, and even though we recorded School's Out in New York City at the Record Plant, uh, Billion Dollar Baby. So we first come to uh, to New York City. Now all of a sudden, School's Out. You know, hey, we're kids. We're out of school now. and all of a sudden, hear these guys from the middle of the desert in Arizona think we're West Side Story, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the fantasy. That so, so that our environment influenced us. You know, British for You is glitzy because we lived in Hollywood, you know. So uh, Love It to Death got that edge, you know, Motor City. Uh, but uh, so now we're living in this mansion. So now we're the billion dollar babies. So all of these things had a lot to do with uh, our writing and our whole concept and our, uh, what we wore on stage. So Cindy made these uh, white satin outfits for the Billion Dollar Babies album, you know, and all of a sudden now we're not these scruffy, tough Detroit street guys anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, the mansion had a lot to do with that. Uh, and then we, the, band we break, ex- the
1: band breaks up at this point? Is Alice leave well, at one point? Is, is that how I understand well,
2: that? Well, uh, you know, with success comes excessive behavior. You know, all of a sudden uh, everybody in the entire world wants to buy you a drink, you know? And and uh, Glenn was the one that was the abuser who uh, suddenly he, he couldn't function on a uh, reliable schedule you know th- we would get up at 10 o'clock and start rehearsing and and Glenn would show up at 3 and basically want us to show him what we had done so that he could join in mm-hmm. and stuff like that uh, he would play great one night and the next night he would be too drunk but also Alice would be too drunk to, to, sing, to remember the lyrics. He'd crawl around the stage, but with the Alice Cooper character, that was endearing to the character. It worked for him. But meanwhile, the hammer's coming down on Glenn while Alice is do it, getting away with the same thing. So there were frictions like that. There, and, uh, and because when we went in the studio, Bob Ezrin had learned well from Jack Richardson not to waste a minute when you're on the studio clock. And, you know, so Glenn would come in and he'd nail a guitar break. He might come in the next day and you'd spend an hour until some, somebody had to go in and tell him that he had to pack it in because he wasn't going to be able to get what we needed. So, uh, and Bob Essendon didn't want to have anything to do with that. He'd rather just bring somebody else in and, and get it done rather than wait for a good day for Glenn. And so those kind of uh, things built up. Glenn's personality was uh, always against authority of any kind. No rules. Don't tell me any rules. I'm not going to give you a birthday card on your birthday because that's what they say I should do. I'll I'll buy you something on any other day, but I'm not going to follow any rules. He'd love to talk to people on the street or anybody be the friendliest guy in the world but you better not tell him how to do something and now all of a sudden where when Bob Ezrin first entered the picture with us it was still us against the world and uh you know we were the rule breakers and everything but then when Bob Ezrin started becoming the authority then that didn't work with Glenn You know, you could if you wanted Glenn to play something, you would say, "Okay, Glenn, play angry or Glenn, you're insane. Play that. Not Glenn, you're uh, play a major scale that ends on a, you know, he knew what that meant and he could do it. But that was that sounded like a rule. You know, (laughs) I'm not going to do it. So there was some of that too, but that's what made Glenn such a, an amazing guitar player right. because he didn't play those scales. He, my favorite thing he said concerning that was, uh, never let the correct notes get in your way, <laughs> which really meant play from your heart, play by feel.
3: Mm-hmm. That's
2: the very first thing he ever told me way back in Phoenix, Arizona, when I got my first bass and went over to his house, I had, I couldn't even tune it. and. Before he showed me how to tune it and showed me the names of the notes on the neck, he said, always remember, the most important thing is the feel. So that was it. So Bob Essren is telling him, okay, let's do this or play eight bars there and then let's go. No, what what I would say is, Glenn, do you want a blue light or or a red light? And And that's what worked with him. So... There was, that was the major factor. And then also because uh, Alice was being pulled away and he would go into New York City and hobnob with celebrities while we're trying to write the album. you know. And then he got pulled more and more to doing interviews. And there was two reasons why we weren't doing interviews anymore. Number one, because Alice, uh, his... Uh, charming ability to make opening a tuna fish can into an ex- interesting story, you know. Uh, it was hard to do an interview with him because if he's telling somebody about the show last night, now for me to add something to that, I would I would tend to want to tell the truth as the other guys. That's what we would remember about the show. We would tell the truth and, and that's like saying, well, what he just said isn't you know, so it didn't, it, it wasn't, it, we would just sit there and be quiet because we didn't want to ruin a good story, you know. Uh, but also, uh, at that point, they started deciding that it worked better as one guy. And we, we were uh, blamed for being lazy. Alice is getting up early and doing all the interviews while you guys, what do you mean? We're, we're, we're writing the album while he's doing that. We're the ones that are doing the work. So there was stuff like that where there was definitely difference of opinion. Uh, it was easier to control one person than it was to control the five of us, because the five of us were opinionated, and we would just dis- make decisions together, and then we would go in that direction. If we made a decision together and then somebody was pulling us in another direction, there was friction over that. It was our creative baby. You know, when when Ezrin first stepped into the picture, he was bringing out the best of what we wanted to do, and then it started turning into more of a Phil Spector thing, where where he would bring in somebody else to do this and somebody else to do that, and uh, all of a sudden, wait a minute, I like Glenn's guitar break on that. Why are we? Why do we have somebody else? You know, they're bringing in uh, Dick Wagner and and Steve Hunter they're amazing guitar players but i liked what glenn played on it why are you why are you replacing that that's mm-hmm. a, an amazing guitar and you know i think uh, the muscle of love album suffered because of
1: that uh it didn't have glenn so alice goes solo and he's like on the hollywood squares and celebrity golf and like so, what's going on in your head? What, what do you? Where are you guys at? I mean, I know you made the billion-dollar babies uh, record, but talk about like. I mean, that must have just been weird, right?
2: Well, you've done your homework. You're asking. You're pushing yeah. my buttons with these questions. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, at one point, be uh, or right around the time just before "Love It to Death" became big, uh, I had talked the band into not saying a word to the audience ever we would and the stage would go pitch black and then on the last note of the song and then on the first note of the next song it the lights would come on again and we wouldn't say hey how you doing toledo because every other band did that and it worked we we had this uh intense uh thing that that really boosted the curiosity because people were coming to our shows what's with you know these guys what's with the guy with the girl's name what's with it well we wouldn't give them the answers in the form of oh hey yeah i hope you like this song too you know so uh it was working really well and we weren't doing as many interviews either uh, but then with popularity and wanting to to let the world know that we exist all of a sudden that started going uh breaking our image and i thought the sailor suits broke our shattered our image i was against (laughs) that we're not sailors we're we're this band that dresses crazy we're not that you know so i was the one that really was kind of probably the spearhead of the one that was being disturbed by things like this and as far as I'm concerned, Hollywood Squares was the end. That was the dirt on the grave for me, for for our mistake.
1: No, I'm sure. Um, we have to start wrapping up just because we're because of time. And I appreciate everyone for 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 uh, your time here. Um, they're, they're all re- looking
2: re- at their watches.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the relationship with with Alice is strange because you know, like, you know, you do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that he kind of goes off and does his thing. And I guess he doesn't want to be associated. He wants to be solo or whatever. But then again, you know, he he is, he is a good guy in some ways in that he's like been married to the same woman and he's like been sober and kind of kept his path. So I don't know. I guess what do you think of Alice at this point? I guess is really the oh, question. Oh, we're still best friends.
2: You know the the group uh, weren't always best friends. Even during the worst of times, there was lots of humor, and uh, you know Alice and I are still best friends. We just always have been. Uh, no, he went he went off the deep end, In the and part. then yeah. he's still alive. That's mm-hmm. more the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Cindy and I feel that uh, if the original band had been together, it wouldn't have gotten that drastic. But that's. Easier to say than it is to do, you know with uh, somebody that has an addiction Uh, But uh, you know Alice bounced back it took him a couple of tries, but he bounced back and uh, uh, You know he's he's doing better than he was for a lot of years there his voice is great He's uh, when he does uh, his touring the young people in his band can't keep up with him. You know, he gets up, he plays golf, he go, he goes shopping, he goes to a movie and does a uh, show. And then all the interviews and meeting people in between, and then the next day does the same. Well, the band kind of k- takes turns, you know, they'll get up early and play golf and, and hang out with Alice for a week and then they go, uh, it's your turn, I can't keep up with him <laughs> anymore. So it's all good in the end uh, thank god he's he lived through it you know and uh, there's a lot of uh great musicians out there that didn't you know mm-hmm. and that's the uh, uh, tribute to all all of his dead friends uh mm-hmm. so you know it's all good all mm-hmm. good alice has uh, always been a great friend to me
1: awesome um one last thing i wanted to kind of talk about was uh you mentioned cindy a few times we'll pretend like she's not here but, um, you know, Neil's sister, you know, you're involved so much of the, you know, involved in the early band, the clothes, the getting you your original manager. Um, to me, this is the great this is the great rock and roll success story It's like like enduring go, being through all of these things. These, this is
2: Well, you know, when I was young, when I was in grade school, a lot of kids didn't know my name. They called me the artist. I was just this quiet kid that did art. That's all I did. And when it came time to, I was second year in college, and when it came time for the band to move to L.A. and really start getting serious about the band, uh, I'm like, I can't choose music over art. And that's part of why we decided to incorporate art into it. And to me, that's, that's what it was. The visual parts was... We didn't even have to think about it. We worked very, very hard on our music. But as far as the, the theatrics and stuff, that was like, you know, that's a piece of
1: cake. That's <laughs> amazing. So um, I think with Tony, is uh, Tony Mann here? I have a few questions <laughs> from the uh, crowd, uh, a few extra questions beyond what I did. Okay. I have a few
0: more questions for
1: Dennis, but uh, let's hear for Dennis and Steven. Okay? <clears throat>
0: let see here, okay this is a question from Dan Roselle, I don't know if he's here on that Dan. Um, advancing to the 21st century, you started playing with the Bouchard brothers, a blue oyster cult, in a uh, blue coop. It's a very solid band, talk about how that happened. Uh,
2: 1972 we, the Alice Cooper group had become headliners and we had uh, Dr. John as an opening act. And about the third show in, he started using a snake. we said, you can't use a snake. We use a snake in our show. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, why I used a snake a long time before? Well, you weren't using a snake at the, so yeah. management told him, if you use a snake one more time, then we're going to get a replacement. Well, he used the snake and we were at a festival in, in North Carolina and, and Neil and Alice and I were walking around out in the crowd and here comes this band on stage, you know, with this big giant backdrop with the symbol on it and everything. And I said, "Start play. they start playing, I go, that's who we should get. Yeah. And so uh, we did, they opened for us for uh, quite a few shows and we partied together a lot and be, we became friends. So uh, that's really the, the root of it. We mm-hmm. became friends uh, years ago. And then uh, over the years, every once in a while, we'd get together and jam, or I'd play on his demo at at his home studio, and vice versa, or we'd get together at parties and jam. And finally, uh, during the, not the very last weekend of CBGB's, but the weekend before that, or maybe the weekend before that, but right toward the end there, a lot of musicians were playing at CBGB's. And at one point of this one night when I was there, it just happened to be me and Joe and Albert on stage. And this guy in the audience said, I want to hire you guys. I want to hire your band. We're like, what band? You know? so, <laughs> so we did this gig that was three hours we played. No rehearsal or anything. And we had so much fun. We said, well, maybe we should make this uh, 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 you know, something more official. And we were thinking of what name. And jokingly, I said, Blue Oyster Cooper you know and then we decided to shorten it out
0: okay very good um this is from uh rodney klein i know he's not he was in los angeles um did you ever have a show like somewhere not at the beginning of your career but when you guys were famous where you didn't get paid
2: chicago okay what happened well, the boys started flashing their guns, <laughs> and we're like, okay. <laughs> wow. Just
3: yeah.
2: Out of there. They were showing us their guns, and uh, not only did we have to play, because back then we would not set foot on stage until we got our money in our hand. Mm-hmm. We would be tuned up. Chuck Berry. A lot of times, yeah, a lot of times uh, they wouldn't allow us to go on stage until the crowd started getting out of hand, and then finally they'd pay us and we'd play. But we would hardly ever start right when we were supposed to because of that. But in Chicago, they started flashing the guns and were like, we're playing. <laughs> not, not only that, but John, John Mail followed us. And I'm thinking, now, Oof. is he going to wait for our show and then go on knowing he might not get paid? Or is he getting paid and we're not? I don't know. Wow.
0: Okay. That's pretty it, a lot
2: of, In the early days, we chased down a lot of promoters, yeah I'm sure
0: Uh, this is from uh, Brian Machutin he's not here Um,
2: are you related to Faye Dunaway (laughs) not that I know of Uh, (laughs) I will say though I will say though she does have a lot of the women in our our family have the features have the uh, cheekbones yeah yeah the cheekbones are very done and she's from Texas there's a lot of Dunaways in Texas right okay
0: um, from Howie Pyro who is also not here Uh, who is your favorite bass player
2: oh my god (laughs) I love so many bass players it's unbelievable I'll say Stanley Clark really? Stanley Clark
0: okay
2: Um, alright
0: from Joseph Russo not here Um, did anyone in the band practice black magic? no (laughs) no are you sure? I'm sure. Okay, he said, he said to say, are you sure if he said it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is from Randy Gregg. Uh, do you prefer, this is a bass geek question, uh, flat wound or round wound strings?
2: Well, I used uh, flat wound strings on most of the Alice Cooper albums up until the very first song I used, round wounds was School South. Mm-hmm. And the second song was Blue Turk. And I use uh, round wounds a lot predominantly these days but uh, I'm I've been sort of going a little bit back to the flatwounds it depends on the song i mean like flatwounds are easier to do these slides like i i wrote the bass part for billion dollar babies mm-hmm. on flatwounds specifically because of the slides especially that very ending where i'm going ree 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 well, put some new roto sounds on and you're smelling burning flesh on that because <laughs> they're like a rat tail file. <laughs> I do it with round wounds, but they're, it, I'm much happier with flat wounds when I'm playing that part. All right, excellent. Let's hear it. That's it. it. Big, okay. big thank you for Dennis